special 150th episode of Optimism Vaccine. That's right. We've made it this far. Can you believe it? Uh, Myros, have you prepared the, uh, you know, the, the uplifting music and the montage of uh, clips throughout the years? I mean, uh, we, we're doing as much as we can to uplift people with this episode, Steve. I don't think we need any bells and whistles. That's true. That's true. And in, in classic Optimism Vaccine fashion, we go, oh, wow. You know, people have really had a positive response to the, the kind of things that we've been doing lately. So uh, what if we did the opposite? You know, <laughs> you, you ever think about that? Maybe a little swerve, we'll throw almost a little swerve. So, hey, you know, that's what we're going to do. I think maybe, maybe, maybe I'll be surprised. Maybe people will love this. I don't know. Uh, Jake, they will. If they watch it, they'll love it. That's just, that's the thing. Go watch well, these that's movies. The, yeah. We got, we got to get them to tune in. That's listening to us is one thing, but watching the movies, that's what really matters. Uh, Jake, I will say I just watched three Stuart Paul movies and now my cat has really bad diarrhea. What should I do? Hmm. Kind of in a pickle I don't know, Steve, but the only advice I can offer, and this goes for you listeners at home, especially if you're driving a car, uh, close your eyes and you can imagine like you're flying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Steve, I've got a solution for your problem, by the way. Just go outside and and find the nearest homeless man and give him your cat. Just yeah. hadn't touched my, my cat's irritated red butthole. <laughs> it's a great idea. Well, and, and Jack, you know, I, I was trying to fix my cat's tummy troubles. So I, I went to the pet store and I bought some uh, like over the counter, make your cat stop pooping so much medicine. And uh, wouldn't you know, giving a cat medicine, that's not fun. And uh, I, I squirted a bunch of cat diarrhea medicine into my eye. And do, do you know how much cat diarrhea medicine you should get in your eye? Uh, they, they, normally don't, oh, they normally don't put that on the box, but I'm guessing less than you got in there. Yeah, that's the correct amount. <laughs> the correct amount is less than whatever I squirted directly <laughs> into my eyeball. Uh, Steve, I have a solution for your eye problem. Just uh, yeah. go outside and find the nearest homeless person and uh, have him touch <laughs> your eye. <laughs> that's a good idea. I mean, on the other hand, my eyes aren't shitting anymore, so <laughs> that's something. I was going to ask if your vision is feeling strained lately. Yeah, that's a little backed up. Uh, <laughs> anyways, holy shit, it's episode 150. What a great start. And, uh, Thank you for those of us holding on from Choi Hawk Month, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> from acclaimed Hong Kong directors to what's wrong with Steve's cat's butt... <laughs> It's optimism vaccine. Well, Steve, let, let's take a second here, okay, and take an optimism vaccine state of the union, right? We did four episodes on Johnny Toe, Criterion mm-hmm. release of Johnny Toe movie. We do four yeah. episodes of Joy Hawk, and just today, Criterion announced they're releasing the entire Once Upon a Time in China movie set on the Blu-ray box set. So I think yep. we've got exciting times ahead in Criterion world based on this episode. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's all I can think of too. I was like, you know, it's it's almost like we have the powers of like a, of a savior like figure. Their ear. You know? we must use this responsibly wisely. That's right. We're not going to. Yeah, I mean, I would say they could restore uh, the great lost film here, but fortunately for Criterion, Stuart Paul's already done the heavy lifting on that front, so really they could just fucking slap some box art on it and be good to go. <laughs> oh my god. 
Yeah, Mr. Criterion is our biggest fan, so I hope you're ready for this one, buddy. <laughs> I like to see the Twitter clue for fucking Deadly Lessons Criterion. <laughs> this statue with a dick. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, if you just tuned in and you saw the title and you're like, well, who the fuck is, is Stuart Paul? What 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 is this? Is this another acclaimed uh, world cinema master that I yep, am not yep. aware of? In a sense, yes, maybe I don't know. In some circles, possibly, Stuart Paul is a uh, writer. He's an actor. He's a director. He's a producer. And you may actually know, and by know I mean you've heard of some of his stuff. You may be familiar with his brother Stephen Paul. Uh, have you ever seen Baby Geniuses? No, probably not. But maybe you saw a funny internet meme and you're like, ha ha, the, the, the smart baby movie that everybody hates. And then there's a sequel and everybody hates that one more. That was Stephen Paul. Now, if you go back through Stephen Paul's career, it is, it's, it's just a long, long list of things that you've heard of, but probably don't like very much. Is that, a, is that an accurate way of describing Stephen Paul's career? Yeah, I'd say. I, I, things that were presumably somewhat expensive sometimes, but I had a lot of licenses that must have cost some, some to, uh, to obtain, but seemingly would not have made any money. Like he has most prominently, outside of baby geniuses, of course, done the Nicolas Cage Ghost Rider films. He produced those, uh, mm -hmm. as well as the Ghost in the Shell uh, film and like the All Bratz the film. <laughs> it's a great reminder that there was a Bratz film. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, could it have possibly made more than $10 million? Absolutely not. So no, I, I don't know. Not. It seems like every one of these movies that we mentioned must have lost money. But uh you know, I don't know. I saw both the Ghost Rider movies, and I'm doing my part. Uh, I don't. I saw the second one in the theater, I guess. I, I've Same. seen them both, but uh, uh, they both are, are bad films. I, I, that's a commonality. In Says the, in you. The, you know, in a, in a weird way, this conversation <laughs> reminds me, I did actually watch that live-action Ghost in the Shell movie in the cinema. I, I Forgotten that until literally this That's a real like power move. Oh yeah. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, one of the brats is in the first film she we're is. talking about. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. This I'm gonna, is, this is I'm exciting. gonna guess that's probably uh, a relative of <laughs> Stuart and Stephen Paul. <laughs> Just uh, gonna take a wild stab. Seems likely. So okay, so Stephen Paul famed producer. Stuart Paul, uh, you know, his, his starving artist brother uh, who's trying to make things work. So you've got a guy who's produced uh, apparently movies that made money and he's got a little cash to throw around and he's basically bankrolling his brother, Stuart. Now, of course, these are not self-made men in the traditional yeah. sense. Yeah, I was going to say, Steve, <laughs> I might take issue with that. We should briefly explain that we are covering this because Deadly Lessons, the first film we'll talk about here, is a film that we uncovered. Uh, we're certainly not the first. It seems to be gathering a bit of cult steam. I, I think that if you're into midnight movies, garbage films, if, uh, seek this out. I feel like Stuart Paul might be one of the next big up-and-comers on, on the cult cinema scene. Uh, 
because he's newly prolific for some reason as well. But um, yet he predates so many beloved people. Right. Yeah. But we yeah. we found him on caustic content. We watched Deadly Lessons and we decided we needed to uh, to bring it to the table here. But uh, yeah, it deserves wow. a bigger audience. This is like if you gave Neil Breen Avatar money. Right. It's yeah. Crazy. One of the things we were we were pondering when we watched this was oh, how does any of this happen? Because again, it doesn't look by looking at Stephen Paul's catalog, it doesn't seem like he could possibly be making money. Like these, he's losing money over and over again. He's produced dozens of films, almost none of which stick out as a potential financial windfall, and. We, you know, one of the first things we go to on caustic content is that it's some sort of money laundering scheme because that always seems uh, like a a, a good <laughs> first step on caustic content. Why anything exists? Uh, probably some sort of uh, fraud. But yeah, the reality here is that after the fact, uh, we came upon some information, and and that is that one of the regular Paul family contributors, uh, Dorothy Coster Paul. Uh, might be better known as uh, Dorothy Coster Ives because she was married to uh, Burl Ives. And I, I think that neither of these gentlemen are making any money with their with their weird Hollywood fantasy lives. Uh, but I, I think that this is all being bankrolled by some weird old Christmas songs or something. That's right. Because, uh, yeah, Burl Ives famously sung Have a Holly Jolly Christmas, right? Uh, yeah, among many yeah. other things. Yeah. That one's a banger, though. You can't, you can't deny that. So every time you hear Holly Jolly Christmas played on the radio, it's like one penny is going into the pocket of Stuart Paul <laughs> to make his next <laughs> blockbuster film, which is fucked up. Stuart Paul is making me rethink Christmas in a lot of ways. It's fun. Why, I wonder why none of these movies have a Burl Ives song. <laughs> I know. You think they'd be able to, like, I, I don't know. I mean, is his mom still with him? Or, I mean, Burl Ives got to be dead, right? Uh, yeah, he's dead. But okay. she's still alive, I think. She's still alive? Yeah. So who who owns the license to the Burl Ives catalog? You'd think they just use it all willy-nilly. I mean, but then again, they're, they're not afraid to shell out the big bucks for uh, big-time Hollywood composers. So yeah, maybe I guess Burl you got Ives Michelle and Ron, why bother with Burl Ives? <laughs> Yeah, well, see, and that takes us right to Deadly Lessons. So, what if I told you that there's a feature film and it has a real budget, it has music by Michelle Legrand, and then it's got the cinematographer from, like, Bad Boys, I think? Is that right? Well, there are two cinematographers. You are correct. The second cinematographer was the cinematographer for uh, um, uh, the Kubrick War film. What the hell is that called? Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket. Yes. Full Metal <laughs> How Jacket. How did you brain fart on that? Well, it happens. <laughs> you know, I just watched three Stuart Paul films, Steve. My brain's not functioning at top Okay. Your film bro status has been revoked. Yeah, so, I mean, but but realistically, it's like, okay, so you got a big gun guy who, you know, worked on Bad Boys, and then you got some art house pussy who worked on whatever, the, the war movie, who cares? Anyways, uh, <laughs> so yeah, there's real people making this very real movie, uh, starring John Voight, who is he's an Oscar award winner or just nominee? Oh, I think he's a winner. Yeah, I, I think, think he's he a winner, too. In my head, he's a winner. And here we are. 
And let me tell you, I, what I when I said, oh, it's it's like a Neil Breen movie with an Avatar budget. That's really what it feels like. This coming home looks like a real movie. It sounds like a real movie. But one thing you can't hide <laughs> is uh, it, it's it's not a well directed movie, and the acting here is pretty questionable throughout. Um, also, oh, the, the story <laughs> is the most like profoundly baby brain, dumb, dumb shit anyone has ever conceived of ever. I, I, I believe. So it's essentially about a, a professor, a doctor, a counselor, a, a guy in a classroom uh, who kind of looks like Richard Lewis uh, or maybe a little bit like professional wrestler, Kenny Omega and his name is Simon Conjurer. And yes, that is spelled Conjurer, but it's pronounced Conjurer. And he gets a bunch of people together in his class, and each one has an addiction or a problem, uh, which that also defines their entire personality <laughs> in one big broad stroke. So there's a girl who's addicted to pills, and she's just eating pills the whole time. And there's a fat guy and he can't stop eating a comically large hoagie. Uh, there is a black man who is angry. Um, my personal favorite, there's a kid who's just like, I'm gay. And he's just like, I don't know if that's a problem, Stuart Hall, Paul, you might want to like rethink some things. That's unfair. It's, it's not a problem that he's gay. It's that he doesn't know whether he's gay or straight or maybe asexual. Oh, can't, can't figure it out. Even though he's I the feel cue, like you could probably figure okay. that out. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> it seems like there's better ways to figure it out. And then just being black and angry—that seems kind of inherently problematic too. But you know, uh, it's just a whole collection of stereotypes in one room. And uh, I, and then I don't know. And then John Voight shows up in a weird, grotesque, like Dick Tracy fat suit and won't stop eating candy bars. What the fuck is this? I need help. I, I've seen this three times in as many months and I still cannot like just fucking figure it out. Uh, it's a grand adventure film. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, like you mentioned, okay, so this is written by Simon and Stuart Paul together and it's... Simon Paul is a, a separate Paul, by the way. I think that is Stuart's son. I think Simon is Stuart's son. I think this is a father-son venture. Is he nine Why, okay, years so old? Simon is Stuart Paul. Why not? <laughs> So it, it just, like, the vibes I get off this first off are kind of like Christian in that it's kind of got, like, this just steadfast belief in some kind of a spiritual failing and a really kind of blunt force cause and effect conception that, like, everyone that, like, Steve mentioned has, like, an addiction or something, and it can be tied to, like, one oddly specific event that happened in their childhood and just, like, flicked a switch, and now they have a problem, and they can fix that through... In this case, not a belief in, in our Lord and Savior, but just some other, just by knowing what's the problem. It, it has that, like, Christian movie sensibility, but this movie is full of swearing. There's an extended nude scene. Uh, it's, it's really a very confusing film, but it kind of, kind of works because it's sort of like, 
you don't know where it's going. You genuinely don't. And there's this kind of, it's, I guess it's kind of also like a kid's movie that isn't for kids. It has that kind of heightened sense of wonder. But the sense of wonder is actually just a, a broad confusion about how films work. And that kind of, <laughs> it, it fills into the same way. You're just sitting there and you're like, I have no idea how any of this fits together. And it probably never will. But I also don't know what will happen next. So, and, and that's mm-hmm. the movie. And it's what, like two hours, 20 minutes long or something. And I it's cannot believe long. I enjoyed it. Although I will admit that there's a point at the end where it's kind of like, I just gave up even attempting to put it together. But yeah, uh, this is, um, as, as so far as like uh, white privilege movies go, where it's just like some white guy who repeatedly casts himself as some kind of Jesus Christ figure. Uh, this, this one is not bad. Uh, uh, I, I'm just, I'm disappointed to hear that you, you checked out at the end because that was my big thing coming in is, is I'm, I'm tasking uh, Jake and Jack with trying to, to tell me what the fuck is going on but with no, Rebel and no how, the, how the end of this movie uh, connects with the, the remainder of it because uh, this is framed uh, through the, the perspective of Rebel at least initially. Well, I don't know. It fucking and shifts all over. Who is young time. Rebel, Myros? Who is Rebel? Uh, Rebel is uh, like an abhorrent actor who is a suicidal <laughs> young punk doing like the Earth's worst Brooklyn accent, even though this yeah. movie takes place in Los Angeles. An obnoxious prick kid who's just like. Oh, I want to die because my daddy left me. Bada bing. I think that's unfair. I think the actor's doing a pretty good job, all things considered. I'm going to say, I, I'm back in <laughs> the kid. I think he's he's given us something. He's like, it's James Dean, but James Dean in like a uh, high school. Well, you you will be glad to know he's one of the few people in this movie who like have, he, he's got like a somewhat legitimate career. He's been in some things, some real you things. See? No, he's, he's, he knows what he's doing. It's just this film has, uh, I, I'm pretty sure got one note, which is like, be sad. And that's it. That's because <laughs> he's got daddy issues. He's, well, he's not, not sad. He's kind of more like that. He's that troubled kid who's going down the wrong path. And his mother wants enlists the help of Simon Conjurer in the opening scene where she visits him in his classroom where... I don't know if he was if he's supposed to be the teacher or if he's just like he showed up for like a presentation for these children because he he goes through this whole thing where if you know if you close your eyes you can feel like you have the sensation of flying when you're not actually flying. I like to think he just wandered into the classroom full of children. I think that's just something Simon Conjurer does. It's so weird, but yeah, the dean confirms that he is a teacher, but he also he has this like night self help course. So, okay, so he's he's tasked to get Rebel, and he picks him up in his giant, like, black H2 Hummer, <laughs> and which is adorned with about, with no less than, like, half a dozen TV screens that are all playing his sermon on the back of the, the seats. Yep. Then they, yeah, then he goes to the, like, the night class where the other troubled people are. They've been patiently waiting to get this underway. Then we spend, like, the next 45 minutes meeting everyone and them going through their past, and they are all... They're all handed a leather-bound tome, which, as they start to read, is, is, is it's like just starts acting out the plot with them, and then they follow that along, and that becomes their guide for the rest of the film, is them reading as they're walking through the city and getting in all kinds of adventures together. 
as they as each as one by one at each location they like each one has like a realization as to why they are the way they are and they're instantly cured <laughs> I of, think of it, their ailments. It, it really kicks ass that like they all have the same root to their problems. It's just like parental issues. It's like my mom locked me in a closet, so now all I do is eat chocolate. <laughs> like my dad was a dick, so now I'm a pillhead. It's every single one is basically the same. And there's another guy who's like, I, I don't. I, he, there's so many people in this. There's like 14 characters. And there's at least three that don't actually have a problem, but one of them's like, he's really handsome, but he isn't. No, he smokes. But like, he smokes. Well, and Steve. he smokes. P.S. He smokes, but he has like image his problems. His dad or his grand, you know, his uncle told him that he's just going to be ugly his whole life. And his uncle was a chain smoker. He would just, every time he walked by, he'd go, ugly, you're ugly. And, and perhaps the funniest scene uh, ever filmed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know how toxic masculinity is, guys, just telling other guys they're ugly. Yeah, like he's, li- he's literally Zoolander, but he's not happy yeah, in his he- role as Zoolander. And that's just a whole character in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it's amazing too because it just, it, there's so much in this movie that's completely detached from reality. And that one drove me nuts because it's like the smoking thing and then the, the self image thing are just kind of intertwined. But then also he's like, I was a supermodel all over the world. That's all I did was people just told me I was beautiful all the time, but deep down, I still hated myself. And I'm thinking, I don't know. You're like a a fucking six out of 10, dude. Like this, (laughs) let's, let's, you know, you got to keep it real here. Like, like how are you an internationally famed model? And he has, he has literally one nipple and no one knew that. Like, you know, very, very weird. All of them have like a specific mark on their body. That is part yeah. of like Salmon Conjurer thing. They're all reading the book that's blank and it reveals personal details. And they just all end up like, they literally ask one girl to just like take her pants down just so they can prove after they've all already seen everyone else's mark. It's a really awkward scene. She's got to show everyone her butt. And it just feels like Stuart Paul just wanted to show a girl's butt. That's a hundred percent it because, yeah. and then the whole thing is just like, oh, she's schizophrenic, and so she doesn't have anything on her butt. She just thinks she does. So we just showed you a butt for no reason, and then like the fat sandwich guy's yeah. like, oh, I want to slather that in mayonnaise, and then the the horny kid's like, oh, va voom, and it's just it's really weird. It's uh, it's deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, that whole that yeah. whole sequence is pretty remarkable because you know normally like film shorthand for this process would be to maybe go through one or two characters a special trait and and see that it appears in the book. You know the audience understands. We move along. Not not Stuart Paul. He he goes through every last yeah. one of these this fucking endless parade of idiot characters. And they all, every single one of them goes through with this it's stupid fucking... It's every scene. <laughs> I mean, the blocking yeah. in yeah. this film is insane because every single scene has to have like 50 people walk into a room and just spread out. <laughs> every... <Yep. laughs> so the comparison I drew to this off mic was I said, oh, this is just, this is the holy mountain. Uh, there's a troubled guy <laughs> comes to this prophet or whomever he might be and he says i can literally turn your shit into gold and then the holy mountain does this where he collects like 10 other people to go on this journey and then each person gets like an eight minute sequence where we introduce them and their backstory and who they are then they all come together and they're they shave their heads and then they like walk to, to the mountain together and then each one gets like their moment of like revelation 
and that's that's what this movie is just not as artfully yeah, done it, it essentially <laughs> essentially if you were to imagine Yodorowsky is actually like uh like an internationally acclaimed uh like tarot expert and he's into all kinds of like you know magics and stuff and he's apparently you know highly respected in that community Stuart Paul meanwhile I think at one point read like some kind of cliff notes of the bible and that's pretty much like fuel his entire career I think some Freud too maybe he just a read little, like yeah, the, that's the, the, skimmed a couple paragraphs about Freud's and again teaching. it's not religious it's just that he's Christ but everything else is just its own thing the main thing to remember yeah. is that he's always just better than everyone else in the sea yeah Stuart Paul does play magical Jesus in all of these movies that we're going to talk about today. Uh, that's just kind of his natural go-to. Oh, wrote a movie where I get to be Jesus again. You know, Christ, the Lord, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the King of the Jews, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. Maybe you heard of me. Well, I mean, that's like, that's a running theme with all of these like self-made auteurs is that they're, they're the Christ, they're, they've got messianic powers, and they get to bone some beautiful woman in some situation where she has to take all of her clothes off. Yeah, that's that's the running theme. Neil Breen, Tommy Wiseau, and now Stuart Paul. This is the <laughs> this is the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost of a self-made auteur trash. Cinema. I mean, at least Stuart Paul's usually using his wife, but I, in this true. film, like, she must have like aged out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, that that is true. It's it's uh, mostly it's his wife, but yeah, this being the newest one, they just replaced her. He replaced her with a younger model, but he did not replace himself. He is still there in the shower with her for a, mm -hmm. for a long time. Speaking of a younger model of Paul, we had mentioned uh, the uh, the family connections, which which there are a couple. Bonnie Paul, uh, his sister, who you'll see in all three of these films, uh, never really has a huge role, but uh, this might be her largest role, honestly. She plays one of the gang of misfits. I think the drunk... Uh, but also her daughter, uh, Skylar Shea, who I'm guessing is probably your brat there, right? Um, I can't verify. I've never seen yeah, brat. Yeah, she, so. she is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's got the look. Uh, a large uh, head with a, you know, she's got the bobblehead <laughs> she, brat's look. She looks like a human brat doll. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, but anyway, she plays, and again, what is Simon Conjurer? Lord knows he seems to be some sort of mysticist. Uh, he's at one point teaching elementary school kids, uh, but also I think he's a college professor. And late in the movie, with, with virtually no reason whatsoever, it, it's at the point where we recognize that the entire plot we've been watching has been some sort of a, a, a trick of hypnotism, and it has not been happening, but it is about to. So the whole time uh, Simon and his pals have been running from the police as he's been framed for murder by uh, Krazax. But, uh, but we find out about three-quarters of the way through the movie that they have not been running from the police. They've just been sitting in the classroom reading empty books, but yeah. now the police is storming up. And for well, some we reason, should also mention that that the Krazax, the person who's after Simon Conjurer, that is John Voight in the in the weird Dick Tracy fat suit eating the candy bars. Yes, I'm yes. just gonna just jump in again here because I'm just looking at Skylar <laughs> Shay's IMDb profile. She is, and we'll get into a little bit of this connection more. She's John Voight's goddaughter, and mm. also uh, Skylar's father is entrepreneur Stanley Schuster, owner of the Grand Avonor. 
He also owned Fat Burger, and Scholar's grandfather is the original owner of Urban Meadows Amphitheater and Lion County Safari, which he later turned on. He later turned into Wild Rivers. I don't know if anybody is kicking back from there, but this family just seemed to just have wealth elsewhere, and it just gets poured into this this kind of weird film habit they've developed. Yeah, well, her her character in this movie, I don't even know what the fuck her thing is. What's her deal, Lulu? Uh, is she the bulimic? Yeah, yeah, she's she's the one with the eating disorder who looks quite fine, frankly. Yeah, yeah. So, for whatever reason, she is necessary uh, as, as to solving this uh, reveal when when the actual events begin to transpire, and and she exonerates Stuart Paul, I believe, somehow because she reveals that she was with him in his office when all of some. Crazy ex was doing some sinister bullshit. Uh, Lord knows, I can't describe this in great detail because it's a mess. But, but the point is, uh, she says she was spending time with Stuart Paul's uh, Simon Conjure because she she was lusting after him. She had a schoolgirl crush on him, which mm. you might not think that much of. But, but why would you cast your fucking niece in such a role? <laughs> Strong Dario Argento, boy, but without the without the other qualities he carried. We also got to get back to Rebel here. So the point about Rebel is that we've described him and we've described essentially what happens in this movie and what sort of character he plays and and how his mother got him into this group because he's a troubled teen. But then in the last 10 minutes of this movie, uh, it is revealed that Rebel is in fact not a troubled teen and his mother uh, seems to be a practitioner of the same sort of who do that the conjurer is up to? She's doing the same flying bullshit in like some hospital, and uh, her son Rebel is in fact also the son of of a billionaire. Uh, and I don't I don't have any fucking idea what any of that means. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it seems like he so Rebel the whole time is just like. Oh, my dad died, and because he died, he abandoned me. Because he abandoned life, and now I just want to kill myself. Uh, he's got fingerless no. gloves on, but then, but then his—he's saying this, but then he's faking it, and his dad was missing, but is back, or was never no, missing in the first missing. place. No, his dad was just also part of, of catching Void because he saw him on. Uh, from his helicopter or something like that. Okay. He's flying around in his billionaire helicopter and he saw John Voight scheming or some nonsense. I've got to be the dumbest motherfucker alive. A third time seeing this in three months, and I cannot tell you what the last ten minutes of this movie is. I don't I don't know. No, d- didn't I, I I thought Rebel was troubled, but then he kind of finds his own enlightenment and escapes from the group and then he realizes he wants to live, and then he he just pals around the hospital with his mom and hangs out with the elderly patients. But his dad's not I, I dead. Just, I, but I don't know why. The, I, I can't exp- I can't explain what <laughs> I saw. Maybe she just okay. said he was. I dead. can only just tell you I what happened. Why, yeah, why the fuck? Why the fuck can't his dad just be dead? There is the so only much- the only reason the dad is alive is to tie up a weird narrative thread wherein on the way to the nighttime fix your vice class. Uh, Simon Conjurer inexplicably allows Rebel to drive his Hummer H2 tricked out with nine video screens and Rebel then crashes it. So he smashes up the Hummer. Uh, So then when Billionaire Dad shows up, he goes, oh, hey, 
Uh, I think I owe you a check, Simon Conjurer. <laughs> and then apparently writes him a big-ass check for this busted you're, you're Hummer. Doing the, like, the, the, like, he's coded Hispanic, which I think is an important part of this movie, in that <laughs> all of the people have problems, and they're all, like, internal problems, like overeating or smoking or addiction. And then the two people who were, like, ethnically coded, it's because the Hispanic guy has no father and he's angry, and the black guy is angry all the time and can't control it. This is yeah. really, really good stuff. Really, Jack Rebel is not angry. He's suicidal. There's a very different, and he clearly suicidal, but suicidal. Suicidal. He's expressed he's his also anger. angry at everyone because yeah. of that. It, it, he's angry. I, I think it's yeah. safe. He's, he's pissed because he he tries to jump off a building and he lands in a mattress truck. It's oh, I which, hate when that happens. That, that's a, such a recurring thing that happens. Like Krazax makes conjurer walk the plank off of a skyscraper and he lands in the same mattress I think truck we, I think presumably we to, like, like let's roll this back okay because we, we've said we've <laughs> said john Boyd is in this movie but you have not seen john Boyd like this before uh, oh, steve no. you, me- you mentioned he's in like a fat suit and he has like heavy makeup on to me he's got this weird like fake nose and stuff he's also doing this like insane like fidgety british accent the whole thing and yeah. talking like and he's talking you know in, in fancy kind of terminology he's very verbose and and everything grandiloquent uh, and, and it's just such a it, like literally it is such a, a bizarre cartoon character and the whole film has this kind of like carefree adventurous tone it's sort of like nothing is real you don't know what's gonna happen yet but he fucking kills a little girl on top of crazy yeah. straight up throws a little girl off of building at one point. She's like the only casualty of the whole damn movie. So innocent little girl who I don't even yeah. know how she fits into the movie otherwise. I, I think it's part of the it's the whole baby brain like fabric that that creates the tapestry that is deadly lessons because He's he's just set up as the exact opposite of Simon Conjurer in every single way. So Simon Conjurer's thing is is like his whole philosophy behind his magical Jesus bullshit is he's like, oh, you like you can use you you have everything you need, all the tools you have on the inside to help you find peace and enlightenment and happiness away from your problems and blah blah blah. And Doctor Krazax, he actually wrote a book. That's called, hey, why don't you go fucking kill yourself or something? Like, that's literally, like, the title of the book is like, hey, go hang yourself. Yeah, it something honestly, like it that. It feels almost like he's got, like, an a, a anti-psychology, like, almost like a Scientologist bent. With it. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, Stuart Paul's yeah, character yeah. is all about, you know, looking inward and fixing things and socializing. And then Krazax is, like, the, the opportunistic guy who's trying to convince you you have a problem, you need to buy his books and do this and that. It's it's weird yeah. and and yeah. So it, everything has to be opposite, right? Sure. Because Stuart Paul, sexy Jesus, Doctor uh, Krazax yes. is a uh, like weird fidgety accent fat suit candy bar man with a, a giant dick statue in his house, and then also the Library of Alexandria. And no, not a replica. The actual fucking Library <laughs> of Alexandria is inside of Doctor Krazax's house. It's worth mentioning at this point too. You might be wondering, why is a uh, multiple Oscar nominee and one-time Oscar winner John Voight in this film? Uh, is it, it's, which one is Stuart Paul's brother? Uh, not Simon. Steven. Stephen Steven. Paul. He is a producer of films. He is also, Adam, you found out, he is, he is John Voight's manager. 
And yeah, then, he's also he's also director of Baby Genius as uh, Bob Clark's manager. We, I suppose yes. we'll get into that a little more next week about how he is obviously fucking driven both of these men's careers straight into a goddamn iceberg. True. I never knew that John Voight was in any Baby Geniuses movies until I started researching <laughs> this, this podcast and uh, this incredible incestuous web developing. Because somehow they got John Voight in here. And frankly... John Voight is good in this, in what he's doing. <laughs> he is, he is a competent. What does good mean to you, Jack? <laughs> I mean, like I say, this is this is a ridiculous film, and it plays out like a weird kids' adventure book. And honestly, it's like he's doing something along the lines of of Al Pacino and Dick Tracy. He understands he's slathered in shitty makeup. He looks really weird. Dick Tracy the makeup is good, but it's very clearly makeup. It's very clearly like this. It's like pantomime. It's a samey look. Oh yeah, same as this. The artifice is yeah, evident. and and he's just like Void is just hamming it up. He's crazy. He's and he's just gnawing down on chocolate bars and just talking out his ass forever. I don't even. I'm not even sure if they wrote his dialogue. I don't know if Voight just made it up. I have no idea. But he's, you know, he's, like I said, I think honestly, I mean, I'll, I'm going to say this. I think the acting throughout this is what makes the film work. The actors throughout this, I think, have been fooled by the hiring of the cameraman from, or the cinematographer from, Full Metal Jacket, and the fact that Michelle Legrand is going to be composing the score over this. These, these men who are real film people. I think it managed to somehow create an energy on set that all of these actors who were bastards thought they were in a real film and they really applied themselves. And there is this kind of earnestness to all of their performances while delivering some of the stupidest dialogue ever written. And kind of kind of works. Uh, it's kind of fun. And I, I really do think the actors are, you know, are they amazing actors? No, but they're they're giving this kind of like real earnest. It, they remind me, you know what? They remind me of um of uh, Lisa's mom from the room, right? <laughs> who shows sure. up the woman who has breast cancer in the room for all people who watch that movie. Uh, yeah, I believe the line is, "I definitely have cancer." Yeah, right. uh, another actress who's showed up on uh, Cost of Country. <laughs> there, there you go. She's just someone who, like, I feel like, she, like I'm pretty sure she's just an amateur theater actor who showed up and got the role and was like, "Well, okay, I guess I'm in a movie. I better do my best." It's that exact same energy, and honestly, I'm I'm here for it. I think it's great. I think it works. I think this movie, um, this movie wouldn't work if the actors knew it was a shit movie and just you know kind of like went crazy with it and just kind of didn't didn't apply that kind of like real honest kind of effort to it and uh, you know or, or if I think if the actors were really good like really experienced and started thinking about it it would get in the way and they trip themselves up because they realize that none of this makes any sense they're just in that like sweet spot of kind of earnest application of craft. And it, it works. I think the film is a really fun experience. And I wasn't expecting that when it started. I was like, oh, what the fuck have you guys done? But it actually kind of works throughout the whole thing. And and uh, that's not always going to be the case, as we'll discover later on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it may more often than not be the case. I, I Yeah, I, there's so much about this fucking movie. Like, it's... I, I might take issue with... Uh, Suggesting that Voight uh, ad-libbed any of this because a lot of his dialogue 
as the stink of of Stuart Paul because uh, it's I, true. I don't it's, even it's very <laughs> overwritten. It pro- it pro- he probably is actually doing everything on the page, but he's right. he's doing it away. Like I think Voight more than anyone, they needed someone who was as good as John Voight can be, and maybe also as crazy as John Voight actually is. <laughs> level it out, and make it work. Yeah, it, I, I, I swear I'm gonna like make it my mission at some point to like sit down and like transcribe these fucking movies because it's impossible to even discuss the dialogue. Like I don't even know how to describe what is wrong with the way that Stuart Paul thinks that humans speak. It's like this weird pseudo Shakespearean intellectual gobbledygook that like everything is just so ornate for no reason. But yeah, you're right. It's like it's it's just so especially with him. His performance is just weirdly bizarre as is like it's doesn't really have he doesn't really he's not very charismatic despite being our lead prophet. <laughs> But it's, yeah, it's just so unusual. I think it's fair to say Stuart Paul is, A, the worst actor in the whole thing because he's the guy who very clearly feels most comfortable, I think, and that that really <laughs> weighs against him. And secondly, yeah, I, I think the script has the energies of a man who has read books about how to write screenplays and has attended seminars on how to write screenplays and very much believes he is meant to write screenplays. Because there is an enormous amount of effort clearly has been expended, and it is all completely misplaced. The the film is a mess, but it's, it seems like a very heavily scripted mess. Yeah, but it, it's so odd because it's so wrong at times. Like, if this was a paper he turned in, the instructor would be like, Mark, and things like, I don't think that that word doesn't mean what you think it means, man. This is, there's, there's like well, some there totally wrong in a word usage. Statue? <laughs> Why does he make a man walk the plank of a building? <laughs> and we will see it in Heaven and Hell too, where there are just like like he's making quips constantly. There's all these lines that are obviously elaborately written, but they're also not correct. Like they're not grammatically correct many times. Like they, they feel like he really thinks they're smart, but they come across as rock-headed dumb because they're just wrong they're verbally wrong awkward messes of sentences at all times Uh, so one thing i need to point out um the film has this very like uh creatively designed opening credit sequence where the the credits of the film are incorporated in the movie like we get this walk through the school and like all the like everybody's the cast and crew's names are like plastered on chalkboards and backpacks and like the backs of chairs and such but then when we get to uh, the written and directed by credit, Stuart Paul's name is like erased and we don't actually see who wrote and directed the film. And I was wondering if Steve or maybe Adam, you guys had any more insight as to why he is not credited on his okay, own. Okay, this is this is weird. Uh, I don't have that much insight, but I can tell you that he did not direct this film under his own name. Uh, A, this film was released initially in... 2006 under the name Legend of Simon Conjure by released I don't know what I mean you know I I don't know that this was released anywhere maybe it just screened somewhere uh maybe one local festival he tried to put it in can which they told him to put it in the trash can <laughs> I guess but it also like if you go watch this on Tubi under the title Deadly Lessons the date on it is like 2014 or something ridiculous like that 
So it, it seems like they re-released it at some point uh, with a more generic name and more heavily like featuring John Voight as a way to try and squeeze some money out of it. But this, when Stuart Paul returned to directing, which is odd in and of itself because he directed Fate and Eminon, uh, which uh, that Fate is 1990. That's the last thing he directed before Deadly Lessons. Uh Obviously, we'll get into another <laughs> oddity in, in the interim there. But the next two films he made, uh, the final song and Deadly Lessons, uh, are not directed under his own name. They're directed under Q Mark. And you'll also notice in the credits for Deadly Lessons that if you sort the cast by billing, he's like last he's not he's not ca- like billing himself as the lead of this film at all i'm, I'm gonna guess union issues <laughs> that's <laughs> that's my best guess on that is that someone was not up to date on their dues or didn't have all the parts together uh which would be insane considering how much money the fuck obviously has. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he just forgot it. He was too busy punching up a screenplay, giving himself a couple of more zingers to make him seem real likable. Like, this guy really wants to be a star. Like, he, he casts himself centrally, and then he's got so many, like, he gets all of the, like, the big lines, and he gets to say, gives himself a load of jokes. Like, he really, this dude thinks, like, his shit don't stink. He really thinks he's, he's a star, and he's amazing. And it's just could not be further from the truth. It's an incredible. I don't know. My big, my big takeaway is he's clearly been psychologically damaged by Burl Ives. <laughs> Everyone in this movie, it like the source of their problems is like daddy issues, parent issues, robbers, Steve, lots of robbers as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that like, I, I don't know what the fuck happened. Like Burl Ives beat him with a fucking Yule log or something. It, it's impossible to say. I forgot there's that one scene with the kid. I, can't, I don't even remember which one it is. And they're new. They developed a, a problem because some robbers broke into the house. <laughs> I think it's the fat guy. Him. Yeah, it could be. But, but what I love is that the robbers appear to be robbing his kitchen, as I recall. And just kind of rooting through the drawers of a That's kitchen. why he's fat now, because he has to hoard the food, because the robbers <laughs> might get it. Just break it this in. This is the like, most like wrong-headed movie <laughs> ever. It's with amazing. All the, all the money everywhere else, like in that, they had they had to skip there. Like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> yeah, like it. It's just it's just wonderful how this this movie that with that cost millions of dollars, like. I don't know. It's just, it's the most baby brain shit on everything. Like, and no one said no to him. Not a single person said, maybe it's weird that you treat suicide so casually. Maybe it's strange that you make all of your brown characters angry and fatherless. <laughs> There's a grander plan. It is so important just for our listeners, if anyone hasn't seen this. I mean... There's crane shots, there's slow dollies, there's all kinds of movements of the camera that oh. are clearly the work. They had a crew, they had everything. Like it's so the, the shower scene? Oh. Let me walk you through the shower scene because it's fucking high art. This is like Oscar. It's more, it's more of a like a fountain scene. But yeah. Please go ahead. So I don't know if this is like a rich people thing, but this woman is taking a shower in like i don't know it's like an outdoor waterfall that's inside in like a giant she, she's literally it's like it's terrarium. like a shampoo ad set that she's built in her own bathroom 
Yeah. So she's like scrub a dubbing and she, the, the camera is like panning across and you get in the titties and then there's this glass table and the, the way that she like turns her body as the camera is panning where this glass table is this thin glass tabletop just covers up her lady parts and you don't see her vagina, but it's just this like masterfully composed. We can't show your vagina shot. It is oh beautiful. It's pure art. And this is what you get when you hire the cinematographer from bad boys. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Probably took them 80 takes to accomplish that, you think? At least. Well, and, and the entire time, Stuart Paul's like, oh, we better do our love seat again in the shower. <laughs> yeah, those strong, yeah. strong vibes. That's the important thing is that Stuart Paul saw a lady naked. That's yeah. the, the, whole, the whole setup. Yeah, he's not making a 137-minute long movie without seeing at least one boob, okay? Yeah. You know, it's in the name of art. Normally be his wife, but you know, things have to give. His wife's not bankable <laughs> anymore. He needs this other lady. And, you know, nope. that's what's going to happen. He, he traded her in for a new model. I think this is actually a, a good point for us to jump because you may be asking yourself, okay, so we've got the background on, on the brothers Paul, the Paul family. We've seen this, this Magmopus Deadly Lessons, which is streaming on Tubi, by the way, so you can watch this right now. And so you're probably wondering, well, how did these guys get their start? This is their gazillion dollar movie. What does a movie without as big of a budget look like? And the answer is we will never know because inexplicably, uh, they made a medium budget movie one time <laughs> and it was called Eminon. Uh, it starred and was written by and was directed by Stuart Paul and wouldn't you know, do you, does anybody know what character he plays in this movie? Uh, well, I didn't catch his name. Uh, no, I, I didn't either. But he's a, he's a Christ-like figure. <laughs> Eminon, uh, you know, no name backwards, which if you didn't catch that, don't worry. The movie reminds you that Eminon is no name backwards. Why do they start calling him Eminon? It, like in the third act, they just like start calling him Eminon arbitrarily, even though that's not yeah. his name and not a thing. Most of the time, <laughs> yeah, throughout, throughout three-fourths of the movie, they're just like, that drunk guy, and then all of a sudden they're like, we're going to call him Eminon. Um, but yeah, Stuart Paul plays Jesus. He, uh, I don't know, he gives money to those who don't have it. He gives hope to the hopeless. He, I don't, he does all kinds of shit, all kinds of Jesus-y shit. And you're probably asking yourself, well, Steve, who needs the most help? in this world and the answer is rich people specifically yeah. billionaire like clothing owners like they own clothing brands and uh that is why um there's there's, there's the kid from growing pains yeah uh <laughs> no no not that one the other one you know the little shitty blonde kid with the bowl cut so it's him and he's he drives around in a limo all day because apparently uh, when you're a rich piece of shit, you don't go to school. And he has a fascination with the homeless and he kind of wants to start a little bit of a homeless collection. And uh, he uh, Eminon is his favorite bum. And he he falls in love with Eminon the bum and just loves the guy to death. It didn't even mention the kid has a limb. Yeah, he's got a limb, which is kind of bullshit. He's a little tiny Tim. He's a little Lord Fauntleroy. 
Uh, the limp is like, it does not play any role in this whatsoever. We're just told that he has a limp, which doesn't fucking matter because 90% of his scenes are sitting in the back of a limo. What do you mean? He's healed in the end of the fucking movie. No, that, that's, that's true. There's yeah, that's not the even moment. a scene where like other kids bullying, bully him for having a limp. No, he's rich. Yeah. And he doesn't go to school, Jack. He no. just drives around in a limo. He drives around, drives around his limo being driven by not Ron Jeremy. Who was slamming whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody got whiskey in my whiskey. Uh, it's, some, it's like a weird like precursor to Cosmopolis, the Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. movie where he's just in the limo and goes around town. It's Cosmopolis if he stopped every now and then to talk to his favorite bum. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And uh, yeah, and also it's it's Jeremy Miller. It, it, it's yeah. deeply distressing worldview with this movie as I, I don't really understand it. it. It's obviously like this thing that was written from a, a tremendous place of privilege that seems to view like homelessness as some noble exotic thing uh for some reason and also dude this is the finest slab of bum exploitation you will ever see in your life it is <laughs> so wrong-headed it is amazing it is so fucking good it, it, it is out there i i will say that and also it has that i guess it's another like running Stuart paul thing is just like this thing where he's always had money and doesn't understand what that means and it just has this like wholehearted uh, really trust and belief in, in the power of, of capitalism and, and the good that money can do in people's lives and yeah that that's really the solution to all of this it, it, it essentially plays out like what would happen like what would late era capitalism do with jesus christ and and the answer is Make a, make a fashion line out of it. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus will help small businesses and he'll help big businesses. And in this case, he happens to yeah. help big business. Yeah, it's yeah. He Jesus helps all the businesses. I don't know. Like my big takeaway from this is, I I can't help. Like I realize that like the film isn't the man necessarily. But I can't help but like see Stuart Paul in all of these films based on like the casting decisions and and the the bizarre eccentric nature of what we're dealing with. So the Jesus stuff, the Messiah complex stuff, that all tracks. But then I'm thinking, okay, so he's got that those holly jolly dollars. Clearly he grew up privileged and rich. Is this like what his life was like? Like, did he just not go to school? He just like scooted around a limo and he, I mean, at home, he's got like an actual like slave, I think. And then he's got his drunk limo driver. And then <laughs> did, did he like collect a bum as a child? I don't know. Uh, like what? I, I, the whole, the, the whole thing about this is like, we, I, how are we meant to sympathize with fucking Cheryl Lynn's character, this fashion mogul? Because she's so rich, but she wants her she wants her business to be better. Who doesn't want her business to be better? But Adam? how she's rich is she? Fashionably. She's she's so rich. Well, a she's she seems to have been the child bride of a fucking a scumbag mogul who died because she says he founded the business thirty years ago. And how the fuck old is she supposed to be in this movie? Well, and they show a picture of him, and he's like some fucking gray ass grandpa man. So this is like a real like Anna Nicole Smith early nineties. Right. Right. For her, she's a self made woman because she married an yeah. old dude who died. Yeah, but she also can't That's seem to dream. actually design any fashion and just keeps uh failing at business 
And yet she seems to be maintaining the facade of fabulous wealth by, you know, having her son carted around in a limousine for 18 hours a day uh, <laughs> while she has while her company has has not paid any of their suppliers, anything of this nature for like months and months on end. They said they had, had sent 30 invoices. <laughs> It's really good stuff. It's incredible. Like I think, um, like I feel, I feel like the whole layout of of Stuart Paul's career is. I think he was certainly like just he's always had money, and this is the classic kind of like film that's basically saying that like money isn't important. You know, it's like money can't make you happy. Money's not important. You'll get by with that money. But from a person who just always had money, you know, and that's like the advice to the very wealthy is like money's not important. Of course, I've got loads of it, but yeah, it's not really what would, you know, make me happy day to day. The whole film has, like, a, like it just is this smarmy, condescending, like, it is incredible how condescending this film is. It is after, like, this, I fucking hate this movie. I just, firstly, the quality is available, and it's like a jerky VHS, so, like, it's difficult <laughs> yeah. to even look at it at the best of times. And then Stuart Paul shows up, and it's impossible to look at it. And it's just like this incredibly smarmy thing about like how the the bombs are like pure of spirit somehow, but that's actually because they're <laughs> Jesus. And like it's really just one bomb who's pure of spirit, who's so pure the rest of them are fine too, I guess. So you don't have to worry about poor people. It's fine. They're they're good. There's probably a magic bomb giving them sandwiches. You don't need to check into it any further. And then he just helps out the woman on the stock market, as you do. And, that, uh, and that's the film. It's just, oh, it's just, it's fucking infuriating to watch this movie because, like, it's, like no one's sympathetic. No one makes it. Like, the whole thing about it is basically this woman who basically just got a business off her dead husband, and she's, like, under threat of it being taken over by some other woman who, frankly, might be much more qualified. I don't know. Like, honestly, yeah, maybe, she, you know, maybe, maybe she's just better at this than... than other person I'm like what do I give a shit what rich people do with their companies but no we're supposed to root with her because her child doesn't think it's just the whole movie <laughs> sucks so badly Dude, and again it feels like a Christian great, movie but, but with no Christianity in it no, no, yeah, it's 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 a Jesus movie with a new Jesus. So you don't you don't need the old Jesus, you've got Stuart Paul. But just the idea that it, it ends with Stuart Paul like actually being crucified sort of like yes. uh, Jack is trying to do to him right now by the crooked uh, board member of the of the fashion company well, yeah. of, of the fashion company but but she saves her fashion line by like this is the level of bum exploitation that we're at right now because you know you've seen this before in movies not like this she literally takes the aesthetic of homeless Jesus Stuart Paul and turns it into fashion and that's how she she saves her business. And then Stuart Paul Jesus Which dies. Which I think is a literal Zoolander joke. Bring us back to yeah. Zoolander yeah. again. The, Dara, the derelict <laughs> fashion yeah. show. It's a literal, literally, I don't know, maybe Ben Stiller watched this movie. I, maybe it's possible. I don't think anyone has watched this movie. Yeah. <laughs> As we discussed, it's difficult to watch this movie. I just realized, yeah, if this like following the Christian movie analogy, Stuart Paul's movies are like Christian movies if the guys who like erected the golden calf statue and worshipped that, if they made movies, that's what this would be. It's mm -hmm. Stuart Paul 
is the golden calf. He's a false idol, and all his movies are about <laughs> him, and he's awesome. Um, yeah, and in terms of like the bulb exploitation, the way they incorporate that, how you know she's just kind of like, wow, that that like fucking filthy parka you're wearing is amazing. Now people would pay good money for that. Like they may as well have a movie. She's wearing burlap sacks at her feet. Yeah, they may as well have a movie where you know where where Stuart Paul's homeless character is really good at fighting and fights other homeless people for money, and she makes bomb fights and like (laughs) finds a massive windfall (laughs) from it. It's that level of respect for the plight of the homeless. It's insane. It's really good. This movie also has literally a scene where like a Catholic, a Jew. And uh, some other religion. I'm trying to remember who's the third guy. It's a Muslim. A Muslim. Like a, that's like right. the beginning a, of a, a joke. Catholic, a Jew, and a Muslim uh, show up in a park as their their re- respective religions leaders, and literally just start like shaking Ebenon and asking like, "Which one do you work for? Like, who? You know, your power Messiah? <laughs> Are you mine or his?" <laughs> it's, oh my god! It's just so empty. What does he wrong. even say? His big speech is like. People can perform miracles every day because they're good. And then all the religious leaders are like, blasphemy, crucify him. I'm like, yeah, it's weirdly anti-religion. It's got this strange anti-authoritarian, like anti-organized religion vibe. But like, what's the alternative? It's like finding a magical homeless man. Well, you think yeah. you could have at least had him say something like mildly inflammatory rather than just like the most milk toast, like we're all miracles. <laughs> Like that that's inciting the riot? Come on now. I think what he wants to say is like organized religion is bad and, and you should just be good for, for, for goodness sake. But he's um, also just a drunk. Sounds like something Burl Ives would have said, but he doesn't do that. He's like, actually, I, th- my message is muddled and you should worship at the throne of Stuart Paul. And he's, he's a, he, I don't understand like the choices. Again, establish your protagonist because... Uh, the fashion designer's just like fucking snorting coke all the goddamn time. And, uh, he is, he's just, he's a literal drunk. Like, they keep calling him a drunken bum, and he's like, yep, I'm drunk. It's like, why is, why, why is Christ just like fucking hammering the bottle every goddamn day? I, I, I mean, when know. you can turn water into wine, man, why, why wouldn't you? Come on. Yeah, it's, Think I mean, it comes it. that classic thing of like Jesus, I mean, they even mention how, you know, Savior would spend time with the he wouldn't spend time with the rich people, he'd spend time with the poor and the needy. And that's what Eminon does, because he is the poor and the needy. He has a problem like that. The only problem is that he doesn't actually suffer from the problem and eventually he just ends up hanging out with rich people too. Uh, but other than that, the movie really works seamlessly. It's a really good good idea. Yeah, it's a shame that there's only a shitty VHS rip of it out there on the internet because, well, I mean, it, that doesn't matter because Criterion's going to do the 4K restoration after this episode drops. For sure. But... That's <laughs> we, right. we haven't even got into, uh, Adam, you've mentioned uh, the, the wonderful nepotism of the Paul clan. Uh, Bonnie Paul, his sister, branches out from not just acting in this film, but she also does. She also provides the theme song. Yeah, two oh, separate songs, ever? actually. Oh, One of God. which I think you noted mid-film, and you were like, oh, that, that must be it. It's bad. But no, the end credits <laughs> song is something truly oh, special. Jesus, they found it in you later. <laughs> oh, uh, further nepotism, by the way, both of those songs are not only performed by Bonnie Paul, who is also a uh, suicidal other fashion designer in the movie who Eminem says, but uh, the songs are also written by, uh, you know, Burl Ives' wife, Dorothy Coster Paul. Uh-huh. 
back full circle. There's a lot of fashion yeah. people in New York. So they just learned the one thing in New York. It's like it's it's a mecca of fashion. So every other person is either homeless or in the fashion industry. <laughs> or both. Uh, somewhere in between. Um, really interesting <laughs> setup, honestly. They're, they're all stealing from each other. Because that's, that's part of the reason why uh, Stuart Paul's wife, why her fashion company is falling apart is because she was stolen from because she came up with this idea like what if santa was a naughty little hoe for christmas and then the other the other fashion lady took it so yeah it's just oh I so many the layers coming with general. the cutting edge fashion idea of like sexy santa <laughs> yeah no one's thought about yeah, that yeah sexy ever. santa sexy bum oh boy i wonder why your business is fucking struggling <laughs> these home run ideas <laughs> These are great. These are great. I feel like I was involved in the pitch process for these. That's the, if, if somebody asked me to come up with a fashion line, those would be the first two things that I said, for oh, sure. I can't believe we also like, didn't talk about the part where the bums are just like playing their jaunty instruments. <laughs> That's awesome. He plays like a flute, but it sounds like a synthesizer. <laughs> Fuck it. To, cool. be fair, to be fair, that could be an ode to the killer. You know, Chow Yun Fat playing a saxophone could, could be. Very you true. Know, when John Woo mm-hmm. does it, it's good, but when when Stuart Paul does it, it's bad. Like, are we are we not playing yeah. favorites now? You know, yeah, that's true. The, the one thing I want to just mention about this movie as well is that, like, I've rarely seen a film where it feels like every constituent part of it is filmed in complete isolation from each other part, and like the kid in the limo with the driver. Um, the mom and her issues with the fashion industry, and then Stuart Paul just sauntering around being homeless. None of them interconnect in any kind of a meaningful sense. It really feels like they shot all of like shot all of them in like a day at a specific thing. You know, it, it's an incredibly disconnected film, and when things start to overlap, it doesn't help. They it vaguely you know, doesn't make any sense how they overlap to begin with. But it just feels like people in just different isolated stages have just somehow crashed through into each other's reality and um, it's just a tremendously uninvolving film and um, the deadly lessons i enjoyed we'll get to heaven and hell which i thought was you know fun eminon sucks so bad because <laughs> it's this condescending and it's boring and it's artless and it's joyless there's no jokes there's nothing like it's not even bad enough to be funny just absolutely excruciating to sit through yeah i i would say if you're if you're looking to go down the paul family rabbit hole here um this one is eminon is it's advanced it's like 400 level paul brothers absolutely like the highest difficulty level of shit cinema well, we haven't got into Stevie yet. I feel like his his uh, Opus Eternity may give this a run for, for its money. <laughs> I mean, we'll it's not see. on its own level. There are other movies I've seen that are like this. But, you know, to give Stuart Paul his credit, his other movies have a certain sense of fun and inquisitiveness. This one is, I think, sets its sights low enough and just leans into enough just like standard lazy stereotypes it's never interesting nothing about it is like really curious to me it's just like it's just a really stupid person wrote a shitty story that's just what the movie feels like it's not like deadly lessons mm-hmm. where it's like i don't understand how these things happen and everyone so seems really interested in it like he's put a little he's got a little finesse over the years 
he probably attended a couple of more seminars that his brother paid for. <laughs> this, so, this is what the know. seminars do, man. Well, see, I, I mean, I, this all ties into me, like the, uh, the complete unavailability of this film. Like, I, I, we had to go to some deep sources to get this fucking decayed copy of this thing. And, uh, you know, both of the other films we're discussing, one of them, again, there was some release discrepancies for like six or eight years and the other one uh try like 25 years and the fact that he's not properly credited on most of his stuff it's just so bizarre considering these people have money his fucking brother's a producer you would think that these would be things that were overly available when no one wants to see them they should just be around but it's it's just this very strange thing and i, I guess that's a as good a pivot point as any to the the last film we're going to cover. Just I mean, before, just before uh, we switch to the last film, I just want to point out that according to IMDb, Eminon was first released in Brazil. And then, <laughs> who knows, any Brazilian people out there, let us know, in 1986, did a really bad movie. Jesus' reach has no bounds, Jack. Follow <laughs> the faith, I do recall this from the initial time uh, when we watched uh, Deadly Lessons because I was like, who the fuck is this guy? What the fuck is any of this? And that was one of the first pieces of information because I was like, oh, what is this? Like a foreign art film or something? <laughs> like, is this, is this guy like some Brazilian who came in and started <laughs> making trash movies, but, but he started out with noble intentions? No, he's just Stuart Paul and made a movie with a nonsense name that was for some reason released in Brazil. But, uh, yeah, I, I, maybe he was, like, actually shot in the head after this film, uh, or after Fate, I suppose, and, and then that's when his true powers mm. were unleashed, uh, because yeah. things really amp up from there. Well, okay, so we, we got, we gotta, we gotta talk Heaven and Hell here. So, you know, Deadly Lessons asked the question, what if Jesus was a life coach slash teacher, and... Uh, Eminon asked the question, what if Jesus was a homeless man? Heaven and Hell asked the question, what if Jesus was a really cool police officer who likes to crack wise and is repeatedly shot in the head? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Heaven and Hell, which was originally shot in the 90s. So, so much so that the second time it happens, he goes, not again. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Let's be honest. You have not seen a movie like this before. I think it's you, safe you, to you say. have not. And if you want to know, like the just like the level that Heaven and Hell is on, uh, the original title for the film, which in my opinion is much much better, is Reverse Heaven. <laughs> Let that sink in. Reverse Heaven and that was the name of the movie originally. Beautifully captures this the tone and the themes of this film because what the fuck is reverse heaven i don't <laughs> understand and i don't understand this movie yeah it's it's a series of car chases that go on for too long like boring car chases <laughs> um a lot of yelling the aforementioned shooting in the head and then uh classic Stuart paul move an ending that i completely do not understand at all uh, went back and rewatched, still did not understand, so I'm going to need that explained to me. Oh, I don't think this movie confused me that much at the end. 
I, I, I'm so, I, I just, I don't understand the, the, the orbs of energy and why he's in the KKK. And okay, Adam, uh, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to have some questions well, he's uh, a cop. you clear up about, particularly uh, the KKK scene. But I think, I think it's worth uh, bringing up. So, so heaven and hell, Steve, you mentioned like the weird uh, release date stuff. So Adam, you mentioned previously how the release dates and the actual release dates don't sync up. So this one is, if you check Tubi TV, the greatest streaming service, We'll find heaven yeah, and hell shout out to with me. a with a t- 2018 release date, and the blurb for the film will say it is a 90 set cop film, but it's not really. It, it is a 90 set cop film because it was shot in the 90s. Very clearly, apparently, it was shot in 1994, and then it seems like it was just never finished. And this is where I think some of the confusion comes in because. The, the angels and stuff looks to be modern CG to me. It, it looks like it's from a different era. And sure. The rest of the film is very obviously like 90s mid-budget 90s footage. It looks pretty good uh, but it's fun that this is not like an incredibly painstakingly accurate period piece. This was just shot in the 90s so everything looks like that. They then added what appears to me to be some kind of a like grindhouse kind of filter <laughs> like like the grindhouse movies to put scratches oh, yeah. and shit on the the 35 mil to make it look like beat up this is a default filter in final cut pro okay this is just <laughs> yeah and why i don't know why they would do that other than to again try and create the illusion that it's a fake period film when it's very clear like you could not mistake this when you look at this this is a shot of the 90s the film all looks like a 90s film in terms of its lighting and aesthetic and everything. Um, so they just throw this filter up over it, and it's like it's all these scratch marks and stuff. And I, I'm, you know, it's a digital filter because honestly, this film never fucking screened anywhere. Nothing was damaging the print. This is just unless yeah, Stuart Paul, yeah. No, I'm interested in what I, Steve's and this is the insanity is. of Stuart Paul, right? Because it's a film released in 2018 that was like 95 percent of it was completed in the 90s. Yeah. And they add in this weird, shitty modern CGI, but most of the film looks like the 90s, like obviously like the cars and, and everyone's fashion and everything is happening. It's very 90s. But then they add this filter to make it look like it's a like a scratched up grindhouse print from the 70s. So what you end up with is this fucked up weird movie that like exists outside of the concept of time. It's just... It's in the Stuart Paul universe, which where time does not exist. Yeah, I thought this choice must have been to cover up actual damage to the prints. Uh, but Jack makes a good point. I don't know why <laughs> this sort of damage. To Who's the print, got a print to damage? Right, this this sort of damage to the film would not be the case, considering it's just been sitting in a fucking canister for twenty years. So, well, yeah. un- unless he didn't store it properly, or but something. even then, you like, would think Eminem it would be like more color e- degradation yeah. than like scratches. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's no, true. If, if it were damaged inside, yeah, if it was damaged like in storage, I think it would probably be like unrescuable or be like you know you'd see like water or something. No, this is like just scratches and stuff like this. You know, pops and clicks and stuff. You know, and like it ran on the gears of the actual projector, yeah. just kind of ripped it to pieces while it and played it at the hundreds of times it showed at the grindhouse. <laughs> and it, it never ran a projector. And also, like you said, like nineties movies don't look like this. Like nineties movies no. aren't of the vintage that they would be damaged like this. So it's like anachronistic anyway. This film just comes with so many questions. And at, at its center, though, it's about a police officer who 
we later learn was shot in the head and regained psychic powers or EXP shot in the head. So the film opens with him just randomly giving chase in a car to some bad guys and he's blindfolded uh, with coins in his eyes and a blindfold over top to make sure he absolutely definitely can't really see and he's just smashing mm-hmm. beers. He's just slamming beers while driving the car and just shooting at these guys and he's driving perfectly because he, he can see just as well with his eyes closed as he can with them open. And it takes about 45 minutes for the film to ever explain why he has supernatural powers. But like for the first 45 minutes, he's just doing magic shit all the time. And everyone's just like, God, just stop. Like it's this <laughs> bewildering setup. And he will not stop cracking jokes. It is maddening. He's like, he's just the most annoying dad character. And he's just sexually harassing this lady who for some reason loves it, who's also played by his wife, worth noting, she's back again. Yeah. Um, Cat calling works, that's what I learned from this movie. Yeah, it just absolutely just, if you meet a lady at work just absolutely just keep keep pushing that button and eventually she'll give in. Um, it's just a bewildering film and again what strikes me looking at it from the start is that it's kind of budget. I mean, the, the car chases, like 15% of this movie easily is just uh, two cars, just people in cars shooting at each other, which is like, and just, they're just driving down the road and the two guys are just shooting at each other and nothing happens. They're really poorly staged, but they're also, you know, staged pretty, you know, like they've gotten moving cameras. They're clearly, you know, able to yeah. track the cars and stuff like that. They've got all that stuff down. Uh, it's got all kinds of like you know stuff for real movies. It just it never coheres like a real movie. And then at a certain point, they just I think because they didn't have what they needed shot, or maybe he changed the storyline. Just angels appear to have a conversation with themselves about I I think about the essence of goodness, but they are just speaking absolute gibberish. There's nothing they say makes any sense. And then uh, we have our final thing. Oh, they're stalking a serial killer, the stripper killer, who is um, leaves. Well, basically you would think desiccated. he would be killing strippers, right? That's that's what well, we no, assume. No. Isn't he at the start? Because I, I was not a hundred percent sure about this because I think at the start they, they they do say that he does it does kill some strippers, I think. But then it becomes more convoluted that he's just killing only bad people. So first off, we have yeah. strippers are bad people. I think that strippers is what they're calling these, like, sacks of skin. It could it could be. I mean, because he does strip the life force out. So yeah, there's an yeah. ambiguity there and not a helpful one. But no. it also comes yeah, down they're, to... They're called, they're called strippers because it's just... It's, it's literally the skin stripped off the bodies and then Jack is crying next to them throwing dollar bills. <laughs> <laughs> but this is so Weirdly confusing. enough... This, like, gave me, and with, like, the CGI of, like, the faces melting, this gave me, like, flashbacks to Choi Hawk's love in the time of Twilight, which also, <laughs> which also like, transcended just the mortal realm, and people would, like, melt and go to different areas, and I don't know, I was, it, it's just really fucking freaky what happens with these bodies. Yeah, so, what's weird in this movie is that ultimately they are facing off against a bad guy who only kills bad people. And at a certain point, you have yeah. to wonder, is what's the problem then? Because he only kills really bad people. So, you know, I, I don't know. Is that a real issue? And then at some point, it turns into, like, it's, it's heaven and hell. I, I don't know exactly how that works. 
And Adam, I do want to get back to you because you say you didn't have trouble uh, following this. The finale of this film is kind of ushered in with a Ku Klux Klan group storming into an African-American church and terrorizing yeah. the inhabitants and smashing mm-hmm. up a crucifix. And then it turns out the leader of the group <laughs> is Stuart Paul. <laughs> I don't, okay. I don't know why. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. There is no, like, there is no, yeah, there's no murderer here. What we have is a demon. We have, or a series of demons, perhaps. Uh, so what Stuart Paul's intent is, is that he is partnering with these evil people and engaging in a, a profane act to attract the demons to these uh, victims. The Ku Klux Klan will then become a feast for the demons. They can't resist it. At which point, Stuart Paul, a, a righteous man, uh, I guess, I don't really know why, he seems to spend the entire movie being a complete fucking asshole. I feel like if you terrorize a bunch of African Americans in a Ku Klux Klan outfit, you see, you're like, you're not actually good anymore, no matter what your intentions were. That's Jack, that was a, it thing. was just a ruse. No one was injured. Come on, It now. was a ruse, but the stripper killer well, prior to this is just killing, like, bank robbers and uh, shit. Remember like, when the stripper killer some... murdered a bunch of mean children? <laughs> <laughs> that is true. There's a couple of, a couple of boisterous street urchins who were like, robbing people on a boat so they have to die too that is confusing yeah he lures the demons uh, into the church with the his whole grand uh, kkk plan and then he does psychic battle with where did he find the other kkk members like like he just knew he's a cop he probably knows them Of course he fucking knows KKK guys. Come on. I can get you KKK guys by 3 o'clock today. That's so stupid, of course. Like, what, why are the cops never at the Proud Boy rally? Because they are the Proud Boy rally. This Same all seems pretty straightforward to me. It's, it just seems like the he wanted to, like, even though the stripper killer was killing bad people, he still wanted to end him. And so he tricked him to killing him so that he would go to hell. It's like the end of the film we watched a few months ago for Father's Day, which was Father's Day, where they find out that the demon is still alive and raising havoc in hell. So they kill themselves to go to hell and fight the demon there. Except we don't see that after he dies in this movie. We just presume he goes off to do battle with the with the demon. And I think that's also why the girl shoots herself mm. so she can join them. But she just kind of lies mortally wounded setup. in the church. That was my takeaway. That's the truly nebulous part to me where she's like, oh, God, he's dead. I'm going to kill myself, but I'm too much of a coward. And then she just immediately shoots herself in the gut. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah, I thought she dropped her gun. (laughs) 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 Ah, shit, I hit my pancreas. She's she's not going to go out swiftly shooting herself in the head. She just wants to die over hours with a gut shot. (laughs) 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 I will will say about Father's Day, uh, if anyone wants to know how much, if they've listened to the episode about Father's Day, how much do I hate Eminon? I would watch Father's Day again first. Or Evanon. <laughs> That's how much I hate that movie. Heaven and Hell is actually pretty good, though. Although oh, yeah. I will admit, by the point where Stuart Paul is shot in the head a second time, I feel like the movie takes a lull at that point. I'm just kind of—I I found myself in a strange position where the film, like weird stuff, kept happening, but I was—I felt I felt less engaged. Like the first half of the movie is pretty great because it's just Stuart Paul being just and just really shitty kind of dad's character and everyone just kind of like well that's him 
uh, for the whole movie. And then and then there's just like a, a gratuitous your training sequence, which I guess we could spend some time talking about. But then the second half, where they just throw in the angels to uh, kind of like expedite the narrative to some kind of grand like battle for the soul of man. I I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if the soul of man was ever really a risk here. I have no, no idea. I don't understand what he's doing. Like, I, okay, so <laughs> yeah. he's he's a cop, so he's like. He's fighting for for justice. Like it doesn't matter who you are. I'm gonna come get the guy who's doing the crime, and the crime is a demon crime. But why are the demons killing bad people? Like that sounds fucking great. Why not? No, because uh, here's the thing: the demons are trying to subvert the rules uh, between heaven and hell by interfering on earth. But uh, good people are protected from their power, so so they're they're stretching oh. the bounds. By attacking the, the evil. But it does seem at the point where uh, Stuart Paul exits to do battle with them that they are actively attacking the angels. So perhaps they're, they're trying to, okay. to really escalate the whole situation. I was just saying, this, this all sounds like a setup for a sequel that may or may not ever exist. But I, I just, like, I, I understand. Okay, so now I understand that why the demons are, are doing... <laughs> they're doing but i don't understand why they're doing it in service of whatever story Stuart paul is trying to tell me uh, that part doesn't well, make I, sense I, yeah but <laughs> at the very least uh he, he survives his uh his shot in the head again and uh twice twice and then he he fucks his wife in a hospital bed That's at true. the end yeah no I really, I really enjoy the uh <laughs> the, the scene where he gets shot in the head because it gives us that fantastic scene where the doctors are just like he's bleeding a lot and they like they're using medical terminology without any medical terminology it's like he's he's there's a bullet in there and like boom, boom, oh, my side. favorite is he says Oh, he's hallucinating while he's unconscious. That's one for the journals. <laughs> There's a tidbit for the journals. What? See, it's worth mentioning that, a- that one of the doctors in this is played by none other than uh, Robin himself, Bert Ward. Ward yeah. Just, just oh, why wow. not? Well, can we can we go back to the? Cause we talk, we talked about how this is set in the '90s, but the VR sequence is like pseudo futuristic for no reason. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That one fucked There's me up. There's a whole slew of these. So this movie, Jack criticizes it uh, off air for being like a series of things happening. And I would not disagree with that at all. But uh, to me, that's that's not a negative thing because all of the things that are happening are pretty fucking glorious. Like we go it's from mostly yeah, not this a movie negative. doesn't exist. On a normal human timeline. Yeah, because it's like car chase and then that fucking bizarre goddamn like car dealership scene and you're like, wait, what the fuck's happening? And whoa, who is that guy? (laughs) Just gives him a free car. I I don't have any idea. And then it immediately cuts to like him going to the police precinct and one of the best scenes in the movie for my money is when he gets in the elevator with like all these stooges and they're like, Hey, Stuart Paul may be a psychic, but he can't smell. So cut a big fart. I'm like, uh, he can't smell. You're punishing everyone in the elevator except for the person you're trying to make this epic prank on by ripping big burrito <laughs> farts. What well, that is not how you, you get revenge on the man who can't smell. 
No, but it rocks because it gets all farty in the elevator and the scene goes on for 10 minutes. And then also the fact that he can't smell never has any bearing on the plot outside of this extended fart. Gag. And then we get to the fucking VR, which is just like, what in the fuck is even happening? Yeah, so, so the VR sequence, uh, it's like the police have a training thing. And the training thing is basically they walk between these giant like concrete cubes that like form a maze, except that the maze is completely symmetrical. And they basically have to walk around and just VR ninjas appear and they just have to shoot all of them on sight. No warning shots or calling out that they're police or anything. Just the second anything moves into VR maze, you have to instantly just gun it down. So it's probably a pretty realistic representation of actual Los Angeles police training <laughs> manuals at the time. Um, and, but, but it's just, what does it mean? The, the rest of the film is in the 90s. It's not like they, you know, it's not like everyone else is doing like like looking at hologram TVs or shit. Like everything else is like of the era, but the LAPD for some reason have like VR training with shitty goggles and guns that don't even look like fake. Like the guns look like they're just regular guns. I don't really understand that, but they're like shoot lasers or something. And the whole setup is so goddamn bizarre. Like I wouldn't even call it a maze. It looks more like like uh, a shitty early cover shooter or something. It's just like a series of like marble yeah. stones placed randomly throughout this open space, which at some point, uh, Stuart Paul just decides to like smash. He smashes this rock with his fucking bare hands. He's so angry he can punch through stone, or something, but it hurts his hand. Yeah, but he doesn't have like super strength. How can he like shattering this marble with his bare fist? He feels he's so mad that he gets super strength. Just that that's he feels things very much. And then I guess. Uh, it, it caps <laughs> with like they finish their exercise and the like a loudspeaker comes on and goes like new high scorer, Stuart Paul, the greatest. <laughs> and then for some reason there's he like three hundred perfect yeah, points. There's like a, a huge like balcony above them where every single person on the police force is standing and just like breaks into applause i'm like what in the fuck is this that's another thing that, that seems realistic is that it's like that you kill everyone in the training routine you get like the highest score possible and i think there's one more segment that must be pointed out uh which is after the movie has started to flag i i will grant that when Stuart paul goes into a coma things slow down a bit but then there's this charity ball where all the children are murdered by demons and the whole thing is like the most psychotic goddamn scene <laughs> the scene I, looks like a fucking the streets of rage set like it's, it's just vaguely <laughs> on a boat with some tables get smashed like nothing about it fits together yeah and there are uh, uh like a entertainment group called the male snail <laughs> <laughs> what, what am I watching? What the fuck is happening? That's right, and that's, that's, good, and that's when Bonnie Paul reemerges. I think. I think she's one of the people at that. So you know, perfect, perfect show out in this. I mean, just if if you want to like sum up the level of lunacy on display here, in a scene which has little to no bearing on the overall plot at all, does not tell us more about our characters. Doesn't do anything. It's just there. It's a thing that happens. Um, there is a bunch of like juvenile delinquents on a boat and then they are given a performance by adults dressed as snails <laughs> and then the children 
have their bones ripped from their body <laughs> and their skins just left out like fucking leftover props from like Texas Chainsaw. If you steal someone's wallet, demons will just steal your very essence. Same thing, you know? They take your bones. My favorite is the the little girl who walks right up to the the comedian presenter and she says, you look like Jerry Lewis. (laughs) (laughs) What? How do you know what Jerry Lewis looks like? That's all the kids are talking about Jerry Lewis these days. It's it's endemic. (laughs) The, the last thing that I just want to highlight um, is that we, we get here, we don't get an M and on. I haven't seen Fate, so I don't know if we get it there. Uh, Stuart Paul smashes his wife in this movie for longer than I was comfortable with. Um, very uh, whole thing. Uh, she's on top, uh, naked. Did we mention he has ESP? Yeah, yeah. We just got <laughs> like the oh, well the. Well, yeah, but he like the opening driving, he's got these coins under a blindfold. Yeah. And then when he's having sex with his wife, he says, no way, put the blindfold on me. Oh, yeah, this is even better. I can see us from the back. Yeah, it's like a <laughs> menage a trois, he said. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he, yeah, Stuart Paul, uh, classic Stuart Paul move where his number one dream is to like psychically like project his soul behind a woman so he can tag team her in heaven. Anyway, full points to Cheryl M. Lynn for just putting up with this shit, I guess. Oh my god. She's been married over like 30 years. The yeah. poor woman. I, I, I will admit, she is not a good actress. Uh, no. I, I talked about, you know, uh, Deadly Lessons. I feel the actors there do a good job, and she's not in that because she's she's aged out of Stuart Paul's influence level at that point. She is the lead, the female lead in both uh, Eminon and Heaven and Hell. And she's awful, frankly. She just is, she's not a good actress, and it's really awkward. But he just gets her naked for that one scene, and it's just this tremendously bizarre kind of a setup. Again, Dario Argento fights. It's this kind of weird, like, this isn't what family is for. Please stop. But that's not what he does. <laughs> I fucking love how they keep calling her Sarge. Sarge Cooler. <laughs> I'm like, God damn it. Why would you name this character? You know what's this cool? So awesome. She's a lieutenant, not a sergeant. That's just, I mean, not to cinema sins this, but I think it rocks that. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, like, clearly she, they established, like, she's a lieutenant and blah, 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 blah. Everybody's just like, ah, oh, Sarge, Sarge. It, it's always the full name, <laughs> Sarge Coolahan. Every time that someone's yep, talking about time, it. Every time, baby. Your idol, Sarge Coolahan, managed to call the crime. And I'm like, what in the fuck is his name? Stop saying it. It's it's really great stuff all around. I mean, the biggest takeaway here is, you know, does Stuart Paul make movies that make a lot of sense? No, but that's that's never been a good way to distinguish great cinema from mediocre cinema. Uh, is Stuart Paul a, a complete egomaniac with a bizarre outsider view of how films should be constructed? Yes, yes, he is. And that's why he makes great art. So uh, if you take one thing away from this is go, go find yourself some Stuart Paul. It's worth, it's worth we, it. We didn't even mention that he gives himself some, like there's, there's a nemesis cop couple who keep taking on him too. Like he's got like, there's like an 80s teen comedy adversary. Oh yeah, it's like Bulk well. and Skull from the Power Rangers. <laughs> yeah, just, right. Just around for no reason. And their whole role adds up to pretty much nothing. Well, I mean, there the the ethos of this film is that both the antagonist and the protagonist spend 
Well, I'm calling them the antagonists, I guess. They're just sort of rival characters, casual antagonists, obstacles. But really, the role of both Stuart Paul and his obstacle characters is just to walk around the office uh, sexually harassing everyone at all times. <laughs> often <laughs> often to the point of, like, threatening. <laughs> it really is, yeah. I mean, the men in this are, are pretty bad. And, like, different times, I'm pretty sure even in the 90s, this like they would be ejected for just being if nothing else painfully unfunny in their in their persistent sexual harassment yeah probably a yeah. rather strange script to dust off in the year 2018 like this will play better now it's like no no sure it doesn't <laughs> and the, the whole thing i mean because we took, like the whole first half it really is like it's a body comedy thing and it's like a mismatch like you know, it's a lethal weapon. It's like the devil may care. It's maybe suicidal cop, a preternaturally gifted cop played by Stuart Paul, and the kind of uptight by the book, the technically great cop who is Cheryl M. Lynn's character, she's like top of the class and counter-terrorist trained or whatever. It also in the viewer training it looks like she's never held a gun before in her life, or whatever. And but those movies really only work if. The people playing him have charisma, particularly for the, like, wild card, devil-may-care character. And Stuart Paul does not have charisma. That is not one of the things he's been gifted. Can't buy it, apparently. No. So it's just really awkward to watch him. And, it, you know, at the same time in the movie, it's still kind of uh, engaging because it's just wrong. It's broken. Uh, but, you know, yeah. you're just watching just a very kind of boring man being like the center of the world. <laughs> you know what it kind of reminded me of? It was kind of like if if Stuart Paul just was like remaking the adventures of Ford Fairlane, but he removed Andrew Dice Clay and, and just recast the Dice Man as himself. <laughs> that's that's kind of where we're sitting. With that's, that's exactly <laughs> oh, Like he's literally, that's actually really good because like he's literally like Andrew Dice Clay. And, you know, whether you like Andrew Dice Clay or not, he has some level of charisma or persona. It's there. You might still find him absolutely repulsive. That's uh, entirely understandable. Stuart Paul is like that, but with none of the no charisma whatsoever. So when he's just hitting on a woman, it's not endearing. It's just like someone should shoot this man immediately. <laughs> and that's 45 minutes uninterrupted. Someone should call the police on him. Yeah. And he says, I am the police. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> God. All of this implies that this movie is uh, anything less than a masterpiece, which uh, I can't. I can't second. This is I, for me. This is not up with Deadly Lessons. I disagree. I think this is on par. I think both are uh, are, are bizarre fucking treasures. I give this movie a solid ten out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I I do love both of these films, but I, I gotta say, Deadly Lessons is the fillet here, and if, especially. If you just want to get your feet wet here and you want to, you want a little taste, a little taste of what Stuart Paul is uh, offering up, Deadly Lessons is the place to start, for sure, for sure. So Agreed. Uh, that being said, we got to wrap things up. So, uh, Jake, what are you putting over this week? Yeah, I'm going to put over something else that's pretty epic. Uh, it's uh, Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0, Thrice Upon a Time. That is the full title. Uh, Hideaki Anno has uh, completed his rebuild of the Neon Genesis Evangelion series through four feature films. Uh, it's taken him about 15 years or so to do this, but uh, uh, 
he's finally released the fourth one. They're actually now all four available to watch on Amazon Prime. And uh, wasn't really sure where they were going. But uh, holy fucking shit, does this last one really just kind of pay off everything that came before it, including the original show and end of Evangelion. And I loved every second of it. And uh, it's pretty great. And I think if you enjoyed the show, you should definitely watch these if you haven't already. Uh, like I said, they're streaming now on Amazon Prime. I don't know. I, I've thought about watching it because like I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know, anime, not my thing, but there's a few things I've gotten into. I like the Cowboy Bebop and a couple other things. Even Galleon, I'm just like, I can't, I can't handle the naming conventions. It's the same reason why I've, I've never played, uh, uh, what are those like Disney Squaresoft games? The Kingdom uh, Hearts? Kingdom Hearts. Kingdom I, Hearts. Like, I, can't, I can't play the Kingdom many Hearts. many reasons why you wouldn't play Kingdom Hearts. I mean, there's, there's probably a few, but I, I just, I, I don't, I can't, I can't deal with the name. Or uh, the Dot Hack series. That's another a video Evangelion game series. Evangelion is like can't. Kingdom Hearts if in Kingdom Hearts, like Goofy jerked off over Pluto's corpse. That would be, okay. Well, yeah. now I'm gonna watch it. See, <laughs> someone should have just sold it to me like that. Spoiler alert! Yeah. Oh, jeez. All right. Well, yeah. that, that makes. It. Thank you for selling me on Evangelion, guys. You're That's welcome. great. Uh, Jack, what are you what are you putting over this week? Okay, so so I'm gonna keep on a theme. So in our last episode, we talked about we were finishing up our Choi Hawk season, and we talked about Detective D and the Mystery of the Phantom Flame, and we correctly and objectively analyzed the film and said that it was fucking great fun. Uh, which is true, and we were right. But I will add, I'm going to put over the next two Detective D movies, which are technically prequels. There's Detective D, Rise of the Sea Dragon, and The Four Heavenly Kings. And honestly, they're so much better than the first Detective D movie. And that's not to take anything away from Mr. Fan of Flame. It's a really fun, great time. But these next two are just like... I didn't know blockbusters could be that much fun like modern CGI laden blockbusters could be so fun there is just so much invention and action and just stuff happening they're amazing so just watch them and you'll probably never watch another American blockbuster again because they look so shitty compared to this alright there you go uh, Myros, what are you putting over? You know, I didn't realize blockbusters could be so much fun until I saw James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. No, no, guys. I heard you talking mad trash on this new American classic, and I, I just think it's because you're not as cultured as me and you didn't recognize Polka Dot Man. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I've never read a comic with Polka Dot Man, but I have read its Wikipedia page so i i recognized him when i saw him i felt pretty smart uh i think it's a bold new direction for uh comic book filmmaking and uh yeah go watch it so good what a convincing argument you <laughs> like, set I forth there. do not know if i'm supposed to watch space <laughs> and i'm not going to because i don't like any of james gunn's movies so i'm not gonna watch any more of them you, you found the correct answer, Jack. <laughs> God, brain is fucking broken. Um, yeah, yeah, you can watch Detective D movies. Don't watch Suicide Squad. Uh, but you know what you can do? You can put porn on Letterboxd now because I'm putting over Letterboxd, putting on their adult pants, or at least their teen pants that live in Utah, because you can put adult things on Letterboxd now, but if, if it's a, a, a naughty adult movie... They blur the cover. 
So you can't you can't see but what adults only do. Only on cell phones, on desktop you can see the posters, but on all cell phones yeah. because Apple are are prissy controlling parents. Uh, that means that everyone has to blur the the, the posters. Yeah. So like you can you can check out like you know uh, fill my hole nineteen or whatever, but you don't you don't know what hole they're filling. We're not sure because you can't see the poster unless unless you're on a desktop computer. So. Uh, but why, why would I put this over? Who cares? I mean, one, it's, it's great because, uh, I guess they work directly with vinegar syndrome, who obviously has been doing restoration of, uh, you know, vintage softcore films and all kinds of stuff that doesn't make the cut for letterbox or at least didn't in the past. But the real reason I'm putting it over and why you should be excited is finally in the year of our Lord, 2021, the sinful dwarf is back on letterboxd and that is what matters. Okay. So uh, go do your part. Uh, five stars, rate it, review it. Uh, let 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 it climb to the top of the uh, the highest ranked Letterbox films where it belongs. And you know what the uh, the the bonus movie that comes on the Sinful Dwarf Blu-ray, uh, the the Blue Balloon, I believe it's called. You could probably rate that now too. Myros, would you give that one a ten out of ten? Uh, it's it's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as far as like unwashed butthole movies go, I mean, yeah, you got to be into the genre, but you know, once you once you dig in yeah. on that, <laughs> it's top tier stuff. <laughs> once you dig into those muddy cracks, baby, you're never gonna want to dig yourself out. So that being said, uh, I don't know. Go put something weird on Letterbox. Go rate something bizarre. Uh, you can do that now, and it'll actually be Steve, there. Can, can I just say I I, I want to let you guys know, Starro was was the villain that that brought together the Justice League. In JLA number one. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. We love we love Starro here. This is a this is a, a big. Yeah, this is this is actually a DC fandom podcast. Um, I'm liking this new Adam we're hearing. This yeah. is great. I like. Did you get the Starro Funko Pop, Myros? <laughs> Uh, and I, I just don't have the money right now. Uh, donate to a Patreon, guys. <laughs> help me out. Yeah, oh, uh, help help Myros get all the Starro. Funko we, we're going to pledge that eighty percent of all Patreon funds are going towards Funko Pops. <laughs> yeah, this is this is. A, He's going back into please. college, and he needs Funko Pops for the dorm room. So, so give Adam a helping hand. Yeah, people don't know that he's Roddy Dangerfield and he's going back to school. And yeah, how's he going to uh, like impress the other kids in the dorm if he doesn't have a solid Funko pyramid? I feel like, in the I feel like Roddy Dangerfield was probably younger than Dater. <laughs> <laughs> That's also possible at this point. <laughs> but did he have any Funko Pops? No, and that's why he struggled in back to school. So... Uh, yeah, if, if you're listening right now, give us money so Myros can buy Funko Pops. Um, you can go to uh, our Patreon. There's a link in the description of this podcast. Uh, helps us pay for things and, you know, just uh, keep the podcast lights on, if you will. And guess what? When you give us money, you get access to a bunch of free content. Hey, maybe you're going to get some special Stuart Paul content. You don't fucking know. You got no idea. Maybe we'll we'll drop a link to uh, Eminon in, in the Patreon. Can we do that, Myros? Can we just throw him some Eminon? Uh, I don't know if anyone wants to watch the file. We have a- <laughs> I mean, hey, you want, you want to dance with the devil? We'll fucking <laughs> we'll play the fiddle, baby. Uh, yeah, see, we'll, maybe we'll do that. But also, if you donate to the Patreon, any amount, whether it's a couple bucks or 20 bucks, whatever, 
I will, at any amount of money, I will send you a, a movie in the mail. It could be DVD, Blu-ray, box set. You don't know. I just ask that you live in the continental United States so I do not go broke uh, sending you things. But yeah, so get a, get a free fucking movie. Just don't even think of it as supporting us. Maybe you hate us, but you like free mystery items. So there you go. There's your opportunity. And if you do want to spend more money, uh, we have a Patreon level where you can tell us what to watch or maybe what not to watch. You could say, please don't ever do Stuart Paul movies ever again, uh, to which we'll say, fuck you. Maybe maybe we'll do a, a, a Suicide Squad episode for the for the patrons. Do you th- would you like that, Myros? Uh, yeah, I can, I can point out what issue King Shark appeared in. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. This is great. How about, are we overdue for a sinful dwarf uh, like revisit? Like anniversary? Oh my god. Revisit no. remaster? Is is it as good as the first time around? I hope so. God, what a beautiful you could check that episode yeah, out. Like, uh, I'm a different person now, so maybe I you know it's a different movie. Like the movie's the same, but I've changed. <laughs> well, I mean, I thought it was the best movie ever made back then, so I don't know how I could possibly be any different. Uh if if anything, I'm I'm probably a little more damaged than I was, uh, you know. Not, I'm, a, I'm a little bit kind of like the Joker in uh, the DC universe in a lot of ways. Wouldn't you say, Myros? Well, he, he didn't appear in the Suicide Squad, Steve. He appeared in Suicide That's Squad. True. That's a different film. You might not realize. <laughs> uh, yeah, so if you have any uh, opinions on DC comic books that you'd like to share with Adam Myros, optimismvaccine at gmail.com is the place to send those. Uh, you could tweet at us at optimismvaccine. And yeah, that pretty much wraps things up. Uh, so, Jake, last word's yours. I hate murder, especially young murder. Please don't.